everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 33, and I am Michael Bradley. This time out, we are back to the spinner rack once more for a look at Action Comics number 22. Before that, though, I have something completely off-topic to talk about, which I'm sure you are all used to at this point. Anyway, I have been listening through episodes of one of the newest podcasts on the block, From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. It's hosted by Tyler Crone and Johnny Freiberg, and they are going through Daredevil stories, as you probably guessed from the name of the show, starting from the beginning, with occasional side trips elsewhere. I've never really been a Daredevil fan that much. He's an intriguing character with a great premise. I've just never sought out that many stories, though it's been on my list for quite a few years to do so. So, because of that, I've enjoyed being able to follow along with the characters' earliest stories via their show. And two, I really, really like that yellow costume. And I realize that I'm probably the only one, and it really has no bearing since their show, much like this one, is an audio podcast. So, there you go. But listening to their show naturally got me in the mood for more Daredevil, so I sat down the other weekend when I had some free time and rewatched the 2003 movie with Ben Affleck. And I'll spare you my thoughts on the movie because it's really just the means to what happened next, which was that it got me thinking about the first Daredevil comic I ever got, which was an issue that was among the very first comics that I ever owned. One Christmas when I was, I don't know, 9 or 10 years old maybe, I got one of those packs that they would sell in the Sears Christmas catalog, and among that stack of books was a Daredevil issue. Looking back, it was probably my first exposure to the character, unless I happened to have seen the episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends where he appeared, but at this juncture I don't remember if I ever saw that or not. So I wanted to reread that issue, but having no idea what box it was in and not wanting to go digging through box after box just to read one comic, I settled for the second best thing and started Googling. Thankfully, I knew the book came from the 80s, and I remembered the name of the villain, so tracking it down wasn't hard, especially given that I've since learned that said villain has only made three appearances. What I found, though, in doing the Google search was that it was really the second best thing to reading the comic, because I came across a blog called the Matt Murdock Chronicles. The blog is written by a fellow named Robert, and for about three years now, he's been going through each and every issue of Daredevil. As I record this, he is in 1987 during the Anacenti run, so he's made quite a bit of progress so far. I poked through some of the older entries, including the one for the issue I was hunting for, which was issue number 216, uh, part of the Denny O'Neill David Mazzuchelli run, if you're interested. Uh, but I, I like this site quite a bit. He's not doing extended synopses for all the issues. He does a quick one or two sentence summary, and the rest of the entry is pure commentary, looking at character development, the story themes, and that type of thing. And he puts a few scans in the post too, so I really enjoyed the look back at the issue and reading through Robert's analysis. I will put a link to the site in the show notes, so be sure to check that out if you're interested. After three years of work and 240 some odd issues, it's clear that he's put a lot of work into it. And be sure to check out Tyler and Johnny's show too. I will also put a link to that in the show notes, but it's on the side rail of the site. 
So, the Matt Murdock Chronicles blog, and From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. Check them out. How do you kill a man without fear? Hi everyone, I'm Johnny Freiburn. And I'm Tyler Crowe. And we are From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. And we are here to bring you a comprehensive view of Marvel's Man Without Fear. Without that pansy, Black Panther. As we cover every issue of Daredevil from the beginning. Starting with the 1960 series with... Tyler, why are you talking like that? Because we're a dark and gritty podcast. But Daredevil was actually a pretty lighthearted book in the beginning. I, I, I mean, it was? Yeah, so join along for all the fun and adventures of Silver Age Daredevil. With irony and Karen Page galore. At From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. Action Comics number 22 was released around January 23, 1940, the first Superman comic of the year. It had the normal 64 pages for a whopping 10 cents. Our cover is by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and it's actually got Schuster's signature at the bottom, which I think this is the first time we've seen him sign a cover. The image shows Superman lifting a large steam shovel to free a man who's been trapped underneath. It's a nice cover, uh, dynamic and well-rendered. Not really the clearest image of Superman, so points off for that, but otherwise quite nice. His cape is very fluid and a lot fuller than traditionally to this point. Plus, the S is visible on the cape, so lots of Paul Cassidy influence in that part. And in case you weren't sure who this guy lifting a tractor was, there's a banner like we've seen on a few covers till now that reads... In this issue, another thrilling adventure of Superman. And at the bottom, we've got a new banner proclaiming the book is the world's largest selling comic magazine. The Superman story inside was written by Jerry Siegel, art was by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and the issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. In recent years, our story has been titled Europe at War. We open with a half-page splash showing a man on his knees and tied to a post being beaten with a whip by another man. In the distant background, Superman leaps through the sky on his way to make a save. It's a decent splash, but unfortunately it has nothing to do with the story. 
So it's every bit as random as the uh, Superman carrying a boat from issue 19. Though it does harken back to the story from Action Comics number 10, the one where Superman sent the guy to prison to be beaten and tortured in order to serve the so-called greater good. Yeah, I don't blame you for forgetting that one. (laughs) Our introduction text reads, Leaping over skyscrapers, running faster than an express train, springing great distances and heights, lifting and smashing tremendous weights, possessing an impenetrable skin. These are the amazing attributes which Superman, champion of the helpless and oppressed, avails himself of as he battles the forces of evil and injustice. Very similar to what we've seen in the last several issues that have used this type of introduction. Just a slight tweak in the wording. Our story begins as armed battalions from the nation of Tehran attack the smaller nation of Galonia, plunging the two European countries into war. At the Daily Star, Clark Kent and Lois Lane are assigned to go to a place called Luxor as war correspondents. Lois replies, Swell! I've hoped for a vacation for a long time. And you'd think she'd be a little less eager to go to a war-torn foreign country, given that last time she did that, she was arrested and put in front of a firing squad without trial for a crime she didn't commit. And some might say she's simply being sarcastic, but no, I totally believe she's dead serious, since in the next panel, we find her complaining to herself that they assigned Clark to go with her and, quote, ruin my perfect adventure. I have no idea why Lois is so eager to plunge herself into a war-torn land, but regardless, Clark and Lois board the steamship Baronta and begin their voyage. And if the Baronta sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same ship they used to travel to San Monte back in Action Comics number 2. The text makes no reference to it and may very well be a complete coincidence, but still it's a nice throwback even if it was an accidental one. As the Baronta makes its trip, Lois and Clark spy a beautiful woman palling around with several of the male passengers. Clark inquires of one of the ship's crewmen who she is and learns that she is Lita Laverne, a well-known foreign actress and frequent passenger aboard the Baronta. Also, since we have the perspective of history, we know that since she has the initials LL, it likely means that she will be nothing but trouble for either Clark, Superman, or both. And it's also worth noting that she's the first double L introduced other than Lois, so that's definitely noteworthy. So that evening, Clark is on deck once more and sees Lita hobnobbing with the captain. But then, his telescopic vision spots a man perched on the boat's rigging with a gun aimed right at Lita. Grabbing a belaving pin, uh, which is one of those pins on the side of the ships that hold the rigging, Clark tosses it, smacking the would-be killer in the head and knocking him from the rigging into his death in the water below. Having seen Clark's actions, Lita is very thankful, and Clark tells her that he is a reporter before asking who would want to kill her. Lita replies that she doesn't know, and the two soon part ways. A short while later, Clark is taking a stroll on deck, and he sees a flashlight fluttering about the captain's cabin. Dashing towards the cabin, Clark peers in the porthole to see Lita rifling through some papers. Clark watches as Lita leaves and puzzles over the entire incident. Over the ensuing days, the Baronta continues her voyage, and we get a panel with Lois complaining about how boring the trip is, and Clark who is wearing a newsboy cap and once again smoking a pipe, silently mocking her. 
The Baronta finally arrives in Turan, and as the passengers deboard, Lita invites Clark to a reception that night at her home. A little later, Clark heads to the foreign ministry to try and dig up some juicy news, but is roadblocked by the guards. Other reporters tell him that all they get is censored news. When Clark sees Lita coming out of the ministry, he thinks he's got an in for a scoop, but is very surprised when Lita blows right by him. Confused why she would act like she doesn't recognize him, Clark resolves to go to the reception that evening in order to get to the bottom of things. That evening, wearing a three-piece suit and a top hat, things you should always remember to pack when you are a reporter heading overseas to serve as a war correspondent, Clark, accompanied by Lois, heads to the reception. Clark is doubtful that they will even be let in, but is surprised and even more confused when they are warmly greeted by Lita and he is quickly ushered off with Lita saying she has much to tell him. Once alone, Lita asks Clark to tell her about himself. When Clark replies that there's not much to say, Lita asks Clark where the sympathies of the greater nations, and presumably she means the United States and Britain, lie, with Galonia or the invading Tehran. When Clark replies that the democracies are opposed to aggressor nations, Lita excuses herself, saying she has to attend her other guests. When Clark arrives back inside the reception, he sees Lita chatting with yet another guest, and Clark deduces that she must be a spy. He then reunites with Lois, who is thoroughly annoyed that Clark left her alone at the party, and without allowing Clark the chance to explain, says that she is leaving. But just then, airplanes soar overhead, riveting the city with bombs. As people dash about, trying to evade the attack, Clark dives under a table before heading outside, quickly changing to Superman and leaping after the attackers. The pilots are shocked to see Superman heading right towards them in midair. Superman grabs onto the wing of one of the planes and, evading anti-aircraft shells, climbs on top. The pilot goes into a series of twists and somersaults, trying to free the plane from its newest passenger but Superman tightens his grip, firmly clinging to the craft. He then begins making his way up the plane and out onto the wing, where he smashes one of the airplane's propellers. The loss of the propeller causes the plane to lurch, throwing Superman off. Though he plummets downward, Superman lands safely on the ground, but turns to see the plane headed straight for him. Machine gun fire bounces off Superman's chest, and the airplane tilts back skyward. Latching onto the plane's landing gear, Superman is dragged into the sky before pulling the plane back down to the ground and with a mighty heave, tossing the plane and smashing it to pieces. And yes, no doubt killing the pilot. Lita has observed all of this and pleads with Superman to stay, but after a quip, our hero bounds off. However, Superman circles back and follows Lita, who quickly makes her way to the foreign ministry and enters, addressed by the guard, as Agent T-21. Superman alights on the roof of the ministry and peers through the skylight to see Lita talking with the army official. We then get a cute bit with a guard, uh, thinking that he's heard a noise on the roof and making his way up the side of the building, but when he gets to the roof, he is surprised to find no one there. And we the readers see Superman standing on a telephone pole adjacent to the building, just out of the guard's view. It doesn't have anything to do with the story and is really just a filler scene, but it's a cute bit of humor. So after the guard leaves, Superman leaps back onto the roof and listens in on the discussion between Lita and the official. The two plot to torpedo an ocean liner called the Calcutta, which is a neutral ship, 
in order to sway the democracies to Torin's side. The official tells Lita that he's already given the command to submarine Y-263, and that in 15 minutes, the Calcutta will be no more. Superman breaks out in a mad dash to shore, diving into the ocean and swimming out at an incredible speed. Meanwhile, the sub takes aim at the liner and fires its torpedo. Superman arrives on scene just in time to see the torpedo speeding towards its target. Diving into the water, Superman grabs the torpedo, forcing it away from the ship and slowing its momentum. Superman then climbs aboard and rides the deadly missile until it comes to a slow stop in the deep ocean. Grabbing the back of the torpedo, Superman swims back to the surface, and propelling himself into the air, Superman throws the torpedo at the submarine, causing it to explode in a ball of flame and, yes, killing everyone aboard. Superman starts to climb aboard the Calcutta, but his X-ray vision spots a new danger for the ship, a mine directly in its path. Tearing a lifeboat free, Superman hurls the craft into the water, hitting the mine, causing it to explode and saving the Calcutta once more. Crew aboard the Calcutta demand answers, but Superman has no time for such things, and after making a pop culture reference to Professor Quiz, which was a quiz show, a quiz radio show program hosted by Arthur Godfrey, Superman dives overboard, heading back to shore to confront the terrorists. Shortly, Superman busts through the wall into where the Turanian Council of War is meeting. Grabbing the army official, Superman flips him over and violently shakes him until he confesses that he and Lita attempted to destroy the Calcutta. And as the official answers to his boss, Superman leaps off to file the scoop for a story in the Daily Star. And that's where this story ends. Interestingly, though, the next issue of Action Comics, issue number 23, picks up with Clark and Lois still working as correspondents covering the war between Tehran and Galonia. So even though it isn't necessarily one big story with a cliffhanger in the middle, this story and that one are considered parts one and two of Europe at War. Okay, so right up front, this story has a problem because of some mixed-up geography. At the beginning of the story, Tehran invades Galonia. Then, the Daily Star's editor assigns Clark and Lois to go to Luxor to cover the story. And they end up in Tehran. So, okay, maybe Siegel or the letterer got confused and mistakenly wrote Luxor instead of Tehran. However, when the next issue opens, Clark and Lois are in Galonia, not Tehran. The Great Superman book by Michael Fleischer from 1978 notes the Luxor naming discrepancy and posits that Luxor might simply be another name for Galonia. I might suggest Luxor could even be a state or province within Galonia, or Tehran. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because they arrive in Tehran. However, there's still an issue because while they're in Tehran at Lita's reception, the place comes under an air raid. The text doesn't give us a clue who was behind this attack. If it was retaliation from Galonia, then they aren't as innocent or peace-loving as they claim next issue. But if this was another plan by Lita or the army official to sway foreign support towards Tehran, bombing your own house doesn't seem too smart of a plan. Plus, someone tried to kill Lita aboard the Baronta, which is also a ludicrous plan, although it could be her co-conspirators were trying to set up Lita as a martyr, but that's never said or hinted at. 
So, even if you can solve those puzzles, there's still the issue of why Clark and Lois are suddenly in Galonia at the beginning of next issue, and moreover, why they went to Tehran instead of Galonia this issue. If you're covering a war where Country A invade Country B, it, to me it makes more sense to go to Country B where the war is actually happening. And none of that takes into account that the newspaper at the end of the story has a fourth name that is neither Luxor, Tehran, or Galonia. But all that aside, and I guess that's a pretty big issue if you can't even keep track of where your characters are or where they need to be for 13 pages, but for some reason I feel like I'm being overly hard on it. After we go through Action Comics number 23, maybe a little more clear, but I've already read that issue for the show, and I... <laughs> I really can't say that it does make things any more clear, because there's still a lot of lingering questions. But another reason might be that even discounting that issue of the mixed-up geography, I'm just pretty apathetic towards this story as a whole. Scenes here bear a lot of similarities to both the second-to-last ultra-humanite story, the one where uh, he rescued Doris Winters, and the eighth storyline from the newspaper strip with the King and Princess of Rangoria. I mentioned a few episodes back that Siegel had been repeating situations a lot, but not really in ways that made you feel like you were reading the same story over and over. And this one's the same, but just maybe a little less so. I don't know. I guess this was just a pretty bland story. The action wasn't all that exciting, and there was really no mystery aside from who Lita was. And that didn't really hold my interest, and ultimately didn't pay off anyway, since Superman throws around the army official but doesn't worry with going after Lita. It seems to me that she was every bit as guilty as the officer, since they were plotting to blow up the Calcutta together. So maybe they are, you know, I think we've mentioned this before, but maybe they're just a little skittish about having Superman smack around a woman. And if that's the case, I wonder if that has anything to do with the disappearance of the ultra-humanite. One thing that really bothered me about this story, though, is that Superman is very kill-happy. Superman or Clark kills at least four people. Probably more, because I presume it takes more than two people to operate a submarine. And these aren't the vague, well, maybe they survived situations either. The first guy gets knocked into the middle of the ocean, and the rest get blown up. It seems like Superman has been a lot deadlier, or at least more obviously so, since soon after Batman debuted. I need to go back some time and see how the stories line up, but it just seems... When Batman debuted, he was very deadly, averaging about one kill per story for a little more than a year or so. And it just seems that since Batman showed up, Superman has gotten deadlier too. In any event, Batman stopped his killing ways in about the middle of 1940, shortly after Ellsworth came on as editor. So, I'm guessing Superman will follow suit, but man, we just can't get there soon enough for my tastes. We also, in this story, have Lois making a slight return to her old ways. Her comments about Clark were done as thought balloons, so at least she wasn't screaming at him. And at the party, she was, I guess, at least partially justified in being upset with him. But still, after a few stories of progress with the character... I hope this isn't a portent that she's backsliding. Art in this issue is pretty standard. Some of it looks a little bit rushed, but there's a fair amount of detail and it's 
pretty consistent throughout. Lois and Lita look exactly alike, unfortunately, all the way down to their hairstyles, which makes things just a little bit confusing at times, but other than that, it's what we've come to expect. On a costuming note, Superman is now sporting the S with a red border and a red S on a yellow field on both his chest and cape when it's there. That started a couple issues ago, actually, and the S on his cape is there pretty much all the way through this particular story as well, and is still just a regular triangle in both places. If you're interested in reading this story, it's been reprinted three times. First in Limited Collector's Edition C31 from 1974, then more recently in Superman The Action Comics Archives Volume 2, and Superman Chronicles Volume 3. The pitiful thing about that limited collector's edition C31 reprint is that Siegel and Schuster's byline has been removed from it. At the time that book was published, Siegel and Schuster were continuing their appeals of the 1968 court decision and hadn't been credited in news stories since the late 40s anyway. So DC went the extra step of erasing their byline from the reprints too. It's an especially spiteful move when you look at the next story in the book, which is also a Golden Age story. Uh, that one was originally printed only seven months after this one, where they not only removed Siegel and Schuster's byline, but added a byline for Jack Burnley, who did the art on that story. And while that's great for Jack Burnley, Burnley did hundreds of covers, stories, and strips for both Superman and Batman, for which he was never credited at the time. It's just an example of the kind of mean-spirited tactics that DC engaged in against Siegel and Schuster. And I'm not trying to badmouth anyone at DC or Warner Brothers, but at the same time, I've got no problem calling a spade a spade. Anyway, that book is a tabloid-sized comic and reprints six stories from the Golden, Silver, and Bronze Ages, plus some original material. So it's great seeing the artwork reprinted at a larger size, not very many Golden Age Superman stories got that treatment. But two, the cover is a beautiful painted image of Superman by H.J. Ward, who did many pulp and spicy detective magazine covers. This painting was commissioned in 1940 to promote the Superman radio show, so it's cool that it's coming up now so that I can talk about it when it's fairly timely. The painting reportedly cost $100 which is about $1,600 in today's money, and is said to be the first official full-length portrait of Superman. It's a huge painting. It's uh, 5 feet tall by almost 4 feet wide. The strange thing about it, though, is that it was missing for more than 50 years. Apparently, the painting hung for many years in the office of Harry Donenfeld, but it disappeared after Donenfeld retired in 1957. The only trace of it that was left in the office was a low-quality color photo, which is what was used for the cover of Limited Collector's Edition C31, and that same image was later reused in 1998 for Les Daniels' book Superman The Complete History. Whether anyone tried to track down the original in 1974, 1998, or anywhere in between, I don't know, but apparently they didn't try or failed and no one really thought much more about it until around 2009 when historian and author David Saunders was preparing a biography of Ward and set out to track down the original. After quite a bit of work, including allegedly sending letters to everyone in the United States with the last name of Donenfeld, 
Saunders was finally successful in tracking down the painting, which he found hanging in the library of Lehman College in the Bronx. The people at the school had no idea of the history or provenance of the painting. I don't know if they ever pieced together the exact chain of events that resulted in the painting winding up at the library, but one of Harry Donenfeld's granddaughters said that she recalled the painting hanging in Donenfeld's New York townhouse for several years, and another relative said that they believed it had been donated to the school. It had reportedly hung in the office of one or more of the school's officials before taking up home in the library. Presumably the painting is still in possession of the school, who now obviously know the history of it, but I just thought that was a really neat historical anecdote and a mystery almost worthy of Batman. But it's just amazing how something like that can get lost and wind up in the hands of people that have no idea what they have. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Other features in this issue of Action Comics are our friends Pet Morgan, Chuck Dawson, Clip Carson, Tex Thompson, The Three Aces, and Zaytara. You know, it it occurs to me that Action Comics at this time had a wide variety of features. Superman is a superhero, Chuck Dawson is a western, Zaytara is a magician, the three aces are aviators, and so on. Superman was obviously the main drive behind the sales on the title, but I wonder how many readers also enjoyed that the rest of the strips had different feels to them. Unfortunately for all you Chuck Dawson fans, this is the last Chuck Dawson strip in the book. The strip, written and drawn by Homer Fleming, has been running since the book began, so that makes it the third feature that debuted alongside Superman to drop off, following Marco Polo and Scoop Scanlon. It will be replaced by a brand new feature next issue, so we will talk about that then. Fleming's Buck Marshall Range Detective also had its last appearance in this month's issue of Detective Comics, which we will get to in just a minute. So the western features are dropping like flies, it seems. After the end of Chuck Dawson and Buck Marshall, Fleming moved over to All-American to take over as artist on The Whip, which was a Zorro-like figure who fought injustice in a small Mexican village. It had many things in common with westerns like Chuck Dawson and Buck Marshall, so Fleming no doubt felt right at home. Also in this issue of Action Comics, we've got a full-page color ad for Superman number 4, containing all brand new episodes of the one and only Superman that have never been printed before in any magazine. And yes, they've billed prior issues of the comic as that too, but this time it's actually true. And to help get your attention to that fact, at the top of the ad is the word NEW in bright red letters that are about an inch and a half tall. And we'll be talking more about the stories from Superman number 4 in just a few weeks. 
We've also got a full-page color ad promoting the Big Six comic magazines. Action, Adventure, Detective, All-American, More Fun, and Flash Comics. As well as the lead feature in each, including Superman in Action Comics and the Batman in Detective Comics. And this is an ad that we will see run for quite a few months. And last but not least, we have our sixth Superman of America page. Our special message from Superman is briefer than in the past. It talks about how the contest was a big success and even goes so far as to say that every member of the club mailed in a letter. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing no. But they will be announcing the winners in a future issue. He then reminds about the three principles on which the club is formed. Strength, courage, and justice. And he goes on to say... Now, more than ever before, should we endeavor to strengthen these ideals in our hearts. For in other less fortunate parts of the world, we have read and seen the horrible results of men forgetting and casting these ideals out of their minds and hearts. War, destruction, famine, and untold suffering descend on mankind once the principles of strength, courage, and justice disappear. The pioneers and founders of America fought, bled, and died to protect and cherish these principles. And with such a priceless heritage, this country of ours grew from infancy into the strong, thriving nation that it is today. Let us then carry on these ideals that have been handed down to us, and by the constant application of these principles, make our daily lives beneficial to our friends, neighbors, and to the country we love. Make this a firm resolution, not only for this year of 1940, but for all the years of our lives. We also have Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Neptune, number 7 on your Superman of America Club decoder. And the message is, With the ideals of strength, courage, and justice firmly planted in our hearts, let us strive to make this new year bright and cheerful for all. Other comics out in January 1940 included More Fun Comics number 52. The Radio Squad strip returns in this issue, with art by Martin Wheeler, at least for now, and Jerry Siegel is still writing. It also has the last Wing Brady strip by Tom Hickey. That strip will be replaced by Captain Desmo by Ed Winiarski, a strip which migrates over from Adventure Comics. This issue also features the debut of The Spectre by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey. The Spectre is Jim Corrigan, a police detective who is brutally murdered by members of the mob. Corrigan's soul is then bonded with the spirit of God's wrath, and he has returned to Earth to punish wrongdoings. The first story relates the origin of the Spectre, though he only appears in costume in the splash panel because the story is continued until next issue. The Spectre is easily Jerry Siegel's most famous creation with someone other than Joe Shuster, and it's the second strip started by Siegel since the debut of Superman. The Spectre will go on to have a healthy run in more fun comics through the end of 1944, as well as making frequent appearances in all-star comics. The character then fades away for about two decades before being revived in the pages of Showcase, written by Gardner Fox, who will also write many of the Spectre's Golden Age stories after Siegel leaves the strip, and illustrated by future Superman artist Murphy Anderson. And the Spectre has pretty much been around ever since in one form or another. In 2010, he even had his own animated short, which was included on the Justice League Crisis on Two Earths DVD, 
In that, he was actually voiced by Gary Cole, of all people. Cole is best known as Bill Lumberg from Office Space. Mmm, yeah. So, the Spectre, Bill Lumberg, wrap your mind around that. And as you're piecing your mind back together, we, ha- we also had Detective Comics number 36, which featured the first appearance of the nefarious Hugo Strange in the Batman story. It also saw the end of Bruce Nelson and, as I mentioned earlier, Buck Marshall Range Detective. Adventure Comics number 47 had the final Mark Bailey-drawn Federal Men strip. Chad Grothkoff takes over next issue with Jerry Siegel still writing. As I mentioned, Captain Desmo ends its Adventure Comics run here, moving over to more fun starting next month to make way for a brand new superhero that some of you will no doubt be familiar with. And this issue also has the first Steve Conrad strip by John Letty. We also had Flash Comics number 3, an all-American book, with the first King Standish strip by Gardner Fox and Harry Lampert. The other all-American book, All-American Comics number 12, had a red, white, and blue cover by Bill Smith and Stan Ashmeyer, and contained the final Wiley of West Point strip by Richard Rick. Outside of D.C., Timely had Mystic Comics number one, introducing memorable characters such as Flexo the Rubber Man, Dacor the Magician, and Dynamic Man. Yeah, I have no idea either. But it's Timely's third series, so that seemed fairly important. Plus, one of the stories features the three X's, which, according to Wikipedia, is the first team feature from the company. And even though I couldn't find anything where they appeared again, that seems significant given the teams that will come out of Marvel in 1963. July 1963. The Marvel Age of Comics was dawning. First came the rise of the Fantastic Four. Then came the Incredible Hulk. Followed by the Amazing Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor. But, the Marvel Age was about to give way to the Age of the Atom, and nothing would be the same. Was the world ready for the strangest superheroes of all? The X-Men? On June 3rd, you can go to the movie theater and see the evolution of the X-Men, or you can listen to Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, an X-Men podcast, and see how it really began. It's the Merry Marvel Mutants, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, the Angel, the Beast, Iceman, and their mentor, Professor Xavier, from the beginning, issue by issue. Every two weeks, join J. David Weider and Michael Bailey as they follow the X-Men saga from the creation to the first class and beyond. Gasp at the tyranny of Magneto, stand in the awe of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, marvel at the mystery of the Vanisher, and cower at the sight of the Submariner, all for the first time, panel by panel. On June 3rd, prepare for the Children of the Atom at xavierspodcast.blogspot.com. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, 
actors, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Thank you very much for joining me this episode. Next time, we'll be looking at the second storyline from the Sunday version of the Superman newspaper strip. And that storyline is an improvement over the first, so there shall be rejoicing. Don't forget, for the rest of the month of September, the show is bi-weekly, meaning there will be episodes on Tuesday, like always, plus a bonus episode on Friday. I'm trying to make up for those missed episodes from the computer difficulties earlier this summer, so don't forget to check back for those extra episodes. In between, though, I invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and links to previous episodes. At the site, you will also find a link to the show's Facebook page and the Twitter feed, so be sure to follow the show on both of those networks. If you want to subscribe to the show directly, at the site, you will also find a link to the RSS feed and the iTunes link. As always, if you have time to leave an iTunes review, I would appreciate it. It helps folks find the show and know that it's worth listening to. If you wish to contact me, you may email thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Let me know your thoughts, comments, questions, whatever. I'd really love to hear from you. And don't forget to swing on over to the Superman homepage for all the latest news on the Man of Steel. Steve is also posting spots now whenever I have new episodes, so that's one more way to keep tabs on when the show is out. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, so head on over to supermanpodcastnetwork.com and give those a listen. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you next time. Goodbye!
pretty brilliant. What it does is every time there's a bank transaction where interest is computed, and there are thousands a day, the computer ends up with these fractions of a cent, which it usually rounds off. But what this does is it takes those little remainders and puts it into account. This sounds familiar. Yeah, they did in Superman 3. Right. Yeah. Underrated movie, actually. <laughs>